Hello, and welcome again to this series of Bible studies which we're calling Raising the Bar. We're going into the Sermon on the Mount of Jesus. And we see that he begins this sermon not by telling us what to do, but by telling us what to be. I want you to think about today's celebrities. We live in a celebrity culture, don't we? I want you to think of a, a politician, maybe an Oscar winner, a billionaire, a sports star, a glamour model, a singer-songwriter. And I want you to ask yourself the question, is that person poor in spirit? Or do they boast about how great they are and what amazing achievements they've made in their lives? Are they people who mourn? Or don't they care tuppence over how sinful they are and how many wrong things they do? Are they meek? Or do they swagger? Are they full of pride? Do they try to dominate a room? Are they hungry and thirsty for righteousness? Or are they hungry and thirsty for more money, more sex, more power, more influence? I think you'll take my point that the, the Beatitudes of Jesus are the antithesis of 21st century values. The world does not value the qualities that Jesus values. Jesus wanted kingdom people to be like him. He was more interested in their being than in their doing. He was at first interested in their attitudes rather than their actions, in their character rather than their outward show. Mahatma Gandhi said, It is this sermon which has endeared Jesus to me. And so before Jesus taught us how to give to charity and how to pray and how to fast, he taught us character. He taught us to recognise that we are spiritually poor, bankrupt, paupers before God. He taught us to mourn over our sinful hearts and minds and attitudes and actions and motives. He taught us to be humble, gentle and kind and meek. He taught us to long desperately to be in the right with God and to be in the right with others. And kingdom people who desperately want to be good on, on right terms with their neighbour will be merciful towards their neighbour. So we see how the fifth Beatitudes links to number four. God blesses the merciful. They will be shown mercy. The prime example of this in the teaching of Jesus is in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Samaritan had been brought up in an anti-Semitic culture. And therefore, when he saw this wounded Jew by the roadside, he probably thought this filthy Jew, what am I going to do with him? He's of a different, different ethnicity, different politics, different religion. But he took a risk. He took a risk in a dangerous environment and he was generous with his oil and with his wine and with his donkey and with his money. Jesus asked the question, who was neighbour to the man? And the lawyer said, the one who showed mercy to him. Jesus told a parable about an unmerciful servant. This man's king had forgiven him a debt of millions of pounds. And the servant went out from the court, found a fellow servant who owed him just a few pounds and refused 
to forgive him. Jesus taught us that forgiven people should be forgiving people. If you have received mercy from God, you should show mercy to others. He taught us to pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Let me read to you what happened in court during the time of the Truth and Reconciliation hearings in South Africa after the fall of apartheid. A frail black woman rises slowly to her feet. She's something over 70 years of age. Facing across the room are several white security police officers, one of whom, Mr Van der Broek, has just been tried and found implicated in the murders of both the woman's son and her husband some years before. He had come to the woman's home, taken her son, shot him at point-blank range, and then set the young man's body on fire while his officers parted nearby. Several years later, Van der Broek and his cohorts had returned to take away her husband as well. For many months, she heard nothing of his whereabouts. Then, almost two years after her husband's disappearance, Van der Broek came back to fetch the woman herself. How vividly she remembers that evening. Going to a place beside a river where she was shown her husband bound and beaten, but still strong in spirit, lying on a pile of wood. The last words she heard from his lips as the officers poured gasoline over his body and set him aflame were, Father, forgive them. Now the woman stands in the courtroom and listens to the confessions often offered by Mr Van der Broek. A member of the South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission turns to her and asks, So what do you want? How should justice be done to this man who has so brutally destroyed your family? I want three things, begins the old woman, calmly but confidently. I want first to be taken to the place where my husband's body was burned so that I can gather up the dust and give his remains a decent burial. She pauses, then continues. My husband and son were my only family. I want, secondly, therefore, for Mr Van der Broek to become my son. I would like for him to come twice a month to the ghetto and spend a day with me so that I can pour out on him whatever love I still have remaining in me. And finally, she says, I want a third thing. This is also the wish of my husband. And so I would kindly ask someone to come to my side and lead me across the courtroom so that I can take Mr Van der Broek in my arms and embrace him and let him know that he is truly forgiven. As the court assistants came to lead the elderly woman across the room, Mr Van der Broek, overwhelmed by what he has just heard, faints. As he does, those in the courtroom, family, friends, neighbours, all victims of decades of oppression and injustice, begin to sing softly but assuredly, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. We are called upon to be merciful, forgiving people. Jesus was merciful. He was merciful to a woman who was caught in adultery. He was merciful to a woman who touched him and risked making him ceremonially unclean. 
He was merciful to a man who was injured while Jesus was being arrested and he was one of the arresting officers. He was merciful to those who executed him. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they are doing. Martin Luther King's daughter once said to her mummy, Mummy, should I hate the man who killed my daddy? Luther King's widow said, No, darling, your daddy wouldn't want you to do that. God has been merciful to us. We are called upon to be merciful to others. I hope you're seeing how these Beatitudes are all linked with one another. If Jesus was meek and hungered for righteousness and was merciful like the Good Samaritan, Jesus was also pure in heart and calls upon us to be pure in heart as well. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Now let's come to terms with what the word heart means. Today, it means emotion. Think of a Valentine's Day card. Hearts all over it, probably floating on clouds. Sometimes people say to you, follow your heart. In other words, do what feels right, regardless of foreseeable consequences. Or they insult you by saying, you're all head and no heart. You're coldly intellectual with no emotion. The heart these days is all about emotion. But what does the heart mean in the Bible? It certainly includes the emotions, but it includes more. It includes the intellect, the thoughts, the motives, your decision-making capacity. The heart in the Bible is the centre of your personality. It is the command centre of your actions. What the cockpit is to an aeroplane, the heart is to a person. What the bridge is to a ship, the heart is to a human being. What the chip is to a computer, the heart is to a Christian. What then does the word pure mean? You've heard of 24 karat gold. 24 karat gold is completely pure. There are no other metals in it. It hasn't been joined with something else. Pure water has no trace contaminants. In a laboratory, if they're producing eye drops for the public to, to use, the water base has to have absolute purity. No contaminants, no pollutants, no defilements, no compromise, no mixture. Pure water. Psalm 86, the writer said, Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. A pure heart is an undivided heart. Jesus had a pure heart. He was pure with money. He could have made a fortune, given the miracles he was able to do. He could have attracted an enormous bank balance, had he so wanted to do. But he was a man who died owning only one shirt. Jesus was pure with power. Three times the tempter came to him and tried to get him to abuse his powers, to attract shallow followers. Jesus refused to abuse his powers. Jesus was pure with women. He talked with a woman alone at a well, a woman with a doubtful moral history. He allowed his feet to be washed by another woman with a doubtful moral history. No woman 
would worry about getting into a lift alone with Jesus. He was completely pure, undivided, uncompromising in his relationships with women. Jesus was free from the tyranny of a divided self. He was free from the hypocrisy that's brought on by compromise. Jesus was completely sincere. He never wrote a mark, wore a mask. He never pretended to be one thing while really being something else. Take your speaker during this talk. Suppose your speaker is thinking to himself, do you know, I'm the best person in Derby City Church to be explaining the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, there's nobody better in Derby that could be called upon to do this series of talks. Really, my talks are the bee's knees, top of the tree, fantabuloso. What would that tell you about my motives? Those motives would be filthy. Those motives would be sordid. Those motives would be grubby. Those motives would be horrid in the eyes of God. We are called upon to be pure in heart. Psalm 24, who may ascend the hill of the Lord, who may stand in his holy place, those who have clean hands and pure hearts, they will see God. Jesus said that the pure in heart will be heaven, will be in heaven and will see God. In Revelation chapter 21, let me read to you this description of heaven. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. On no day would its gates ever be shut for there would be no night there. Nothing impure will ever enter it nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. God, through his Holy Spirit, is setting about making our hearts pure so that one day we will be able to be in that wonderful city in the presence of God where there is nothing impure or shameful or deceitful, only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Kingdom people who are meek, Kingdom people who ache for righteousness. Kingdom people who are merciful and pure in heart will do all they can to make peace. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Nobody ever said of Jesus, he causes nothing but trouble. He's so prickly, you have to mind your P's and Q's all the time. He's so obstinate and opinionated. He's so difficult. I can't stand the man. Nobody said things like that with Jesus. He was a peacemaker. The 12 weren't peacemakers. They squabbled amongst themselves over who was going to be the most important. James and John actually put in an official request to Jesus. When your kingdom comes, Lord, we want to be on the right hand throne and the left hand throne in your kingdom. Is that right with you? When... Peter was told by Jesus how he was going to die. Peter said, well, what about John? How's he going to die? What's going to happen at the end of his life? Full of themselves, full of their own self-importance, causing trouble, dissension, division, 
rivalry. Jesus was a peacemaker. When he came to that locked room where the men were gathered, terrified at what was going to happen to them next, he said, peace be with you. Peacemakers. Peacemakers don't stir up trouble. They don't fly off the handle. They don't join the awkward squad. They don't stir things up. Peacemakers don't blurt out words they will later regret. They don't cast around for things to criticise. They don't gossip about the faults they find in others. Have you heard what I've heard about so-and-so? That's not peacemaking. Be like Jesus. Be a peacemaker in your home, with your friends, in your streets, where you work, where you shop, in your church. And Jesus said, you'll be called a son or a daughter of God. And even though you make peace, sometimes you will face persecution. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the only double beatitude. There's persecution because of righteousness, and then there's persecution because of Jesus. Let's look at persecution because of righteousness. Some people who hungered and thirsted for righteousness had to face trouble ahead. Think of Joseph in Potiphar's household and how well trusted he was by Potiphar. But Mrs. Potiphar fancied him and tried to get Joseph to sleep with her. And he wouldn't do it for righteousness' sake. And he fled and he was put in prison for years as a consequence. Think of this time, the time of Jesus. John the Baptist is in prison. Why is he in prison? Because his king, Herod Antipas, has divorced his wife in order to marry his brother's wife. Another divorce. And John the Baptist said, this isn't on. You're the king of Galilee, king of the Jews. And he ended up in prison, in depression and in execution for righteousness' sake. Going back to Martin Luther King, his house was bombed. He was accused of being a communist. He was slugged in a hotel lobby. He was stabbed. He was jailed over 20 times. He was occasionally betrayed by his friends. He was assassinated. Why? He stood up for righteousness. He stood up for the human rights of black Americans. He wanted black Americans to be treated on an equal footing with white Americans. Think of Tim Farron, MP. He used to be the leader of Liberal Democrats in Britain. He abstained on the same-sex marriage bill when it came to the House of Commons. And he was lambasted by the press and by the media. And he had to stand down as leader of his party. He said, torn between living as a faithful Christian and serving as a political leader... He couldn't do it. It's happening again now, isn't it? Kate Forbes of the Scottish National Party would like to be the SNP leader, but she is being lambasted by the media and even by members of her own party 
because she has not voted in the past for gay marriage and she wouldn't vote for the gender equality issues which are before the Scottish Parliament at this time. Standing up for righteousness can lead to persecution. And Jesus says, if that happens, then you are blessed by God. Another cause of persecution is persecution directly because you are a Christian. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. You may have heard of Open Doors, the charity which records, investigates and records and reports on levels of persecution against Christians, against the church. And last year in 2021, one out of every seven Christians lived in a high level of persecution or discrimination. That is 360 million believers. 140,000 Christians were displaced. 5,621 Christians were martyred in 2021. Eight out of ten of those in Nigeria. Fifteen of your brothers and sisters were martyred every day last year purely because they identified Jesus Christ as Lord. Last year, 2,110 church buildings were attacked, looted or closed. Half of those in China. North Korea is the most dangerous place on earth to say that Jesus is Lord. And Jesus said to the disciples, blessed are you when this happens to you. And it's in the second person plural. He's talking to those particular men. James was beheaded. Peter was crucified. John was exiled. Probably 11 out of the 12 died violent deaths. So this word blessed, it can't really mean happy, fortunate, blissful, floating on clouds, can it? It means fortunate in God's eyes. You are blessed, you're happy in God's eyes if these beatitudes apply to you. He says rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. Blessed are the dead, it says in Revelation, who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, they will rest from their labours, for their deeds will follow him. Again, I want you to notice, these Beatitudes are the opposite of pride. The proud man won't show mercy, he'll see it as weakness. The proud woman won't be pure in heart, she's far too vain. The proud man won't be a peacemaker. He'd rather make war to prove the superiority of his nation. The proud woman won't joyfully accept persecution because she just has to put her family first. Pride and these beatitudes are at complete contrast and variance with one another. Jesus, in these beatitudes, is raising the bar. He is saying, this is what kingdom people will be like. They will be poor in spirit, 
They'll be mournful over their sinfulness. They'll be meek towards God and towards others. They'll be desperate to be right before God and others. They will be merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers, able to withstand persecution positively and joyfully. He has raised the bar that we as his kingdom followers may be like him. Before he tells us what to do, he tells us what to be. And if you continue with this series, I tell you, it's not going to get any easier. Next time, our attitudes towards Moses' laws will be considered and we'll find that the standard is getting tougher and tougher. But if you are a follower of Jesus, then in the eyes of God you are blessed, happy, joyful, benefited to be rewarded if you embrace these eight beautiful attitudes. May the Lord bless you as you seek the Lord and seek to be more like him in your thoughts and in your ways and in your behaviour. Amen.